The Tucson shootings have many people examining the intensity of our political rhetoric. Do violent metaphors spark violent acts? Our linguist Jeff Nunberg isn't sure, but he says that isn't the point. Sarah Palin was right. It was irresponsible for people to say that she had anything to do with the Tucson shootings. I'm not sure why she had to bring blood libel and the persecution of the medieval Jews into it, but she certainly could say it was a bum rap. But people kept talking about political rhetoric even after the facts came out. For some, it was just an opportunity to bash the right. But most people were worried about the continuing potential for violence. In polls, the majority of Americans said that the tone of debate has become so inflammatory that it could push people over the edge. It's hard to prove that connection. There are more threats on politicians on both sides now, but not a lot of people are unhinged enough to actually try to carry out attacks. And once somebody's that far gone, he could be getting his marching orders from anywhere—Fox News, Grand Theft Auto, or the planet Romulus. But these attacks are disturbing, even when they can't be directly linked to the language and symbols of political debate. How can you not be brought up short when a congresswoman is shot after she's been targeted on a campaign map with a crosshair? It's the feeling you'd have if you told somebody, "Oh, drop dead," and then two days later he keeled over with a fatal heart attack. Not that you caused it or even wished it, but all of a sudden your words are rumbling with their literal meaning. The Prussian military theorist Karl von Clausewitz famously said that war is the continuation of politics by other means. But to listen to the way we talk, the opposite is true as well. The language of politics is—you should excuse the expression—shot through with martial imagery, with its campaigns, war rooms, battleground states, political bombshells, and attack ads. And that's not to mention the linguistic carnage that pervades our everyday speech: catch flack, take no prisoners, crash and burn. But it takes a violent event like Tucson to make people self-conscious about this language. 9/11 had the same effect. For a few months, we were all monitoring our words for any hint of semantic mayhem. I recall just after the attacks, listening to the San Francisco Giants announcer Mike Kruko describing the replay of a monster homer by Andres Galarraga. Boy, he said, he really murdered. He really hit that one good. Some people argue that purging our speech of all these metaphors would make us kinder, gentler conversationalists. Instead of saying she shot down his arguments, why don't we say she unraveled them or danced them into a corner? That was presumably what Democratic Congresswoman Shelley Pingree had in mind when she urged the Republicans to remove the word "killing" from the name of what they're calling the "Repealing the Job-Killing Health Care Law Act." This didn't make a lot of sense to me at first. In that context, the word "kill" doesn't conjure up any violent images, no more than it does when we talk about killing the lights, a deal, a bottle of scotch, or a couple of hours between flights. In fact, the proliferation of these denatured metaphors is really a tribute to the civilizing process, as we sublimate our aggression into more pacific channels. Still. House Speaker John Boehner started to replace job killing with job destroying and job crushing in his remarks. Those weren't exactly nonviolent alternatives, but there's a point to the gesture anyway. Once you start being careful about these dead metaphors, you're apt to be more circumspect about the ones that still have some blood running through their veins. The fact is that we no sooner domesticate one figure of speech than somebody introduces another to evoke a vivid image of combat. When fire away gets tired, you can go to lock and load. And while a crosshair may function much like a target, 
it isn't so tame that you can use it as a symbol of a discount store. For that matter, there's a difference between telling supporters at a fundraiser not to be outgunned and telling them, if they bring a knife, you bring a gun. The message doesn't change, but the adrenaline level does. It's a strength of the modern political culture that these apocalyptic metaphors no longer rouse people to armed insurrection. But then indignation has never had so many recreational outlets before. We can spend all our waking hours listening to broadcast political invective or writing sarcastic blog comments to excoriate the morons on the other side. That's the dirty little secret of political vituperation. Left and right, we all like to go there. But even if these violent reveries are almost never acted out, they course in the debate and dehumanize the other side. In fact, the scenarios behind those fantasies go a long way toward creating the so-called climate of hate. If you're going to imagine yourself riding to the rescue of the Republic, you're going to need to see your opponents as nefarious alien life forms. You put on a cowboy suit, and suddenly everybody else is an Indian. Jeff Nunberg is a linguist who teaches at the School of Information at the University of California, Berkeley. You can follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at NPR Fresh Air. And you can download podcasts of our show at freshair.npr.org. FreshAir's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Joan Tui-Westman, Sam Brigger, John Myers, John Sheehan, Lauren Krenzel, and Heidi Saman. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies.